and indeed this may well be the case. In that event there was no error. If the critics of scripture wish to use the intention of the writer, this is one place it can be used in favor of inerrancy. Matthew Henry in his commentary has it read, The mustard seed, which is one of the least of the seeds. From the Greek it is not clear that Jesus was saying that the mustard seed is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. He was saying it is less than all the seeds. What must be determined is what the words all the seeds mean here. If Jesus was talking about the seeds commonly known to the people of that day, the effect of his words was different from what they would have been if he was speaking of all seeds on the earth. When the possibility exists for a translation that fulfills the intention of the speaker and does not constitute error, that passage is to be preferred above one that does the opposite. And when two possibilities exist, why should not the benefit of any doubt be given in favor of the one that fulfills what the scripture teaches about inerrancy. To choose the other route leaves behind the implication that one is seeking out error and trying to establish it on flimsy grounds. Dewey Beagle on Inerrancy I turn now to the work of Dewey N. Beagle entitled Scripture, Tradition, and Infallibility published by the William B. Erdsman Publishing Company. This is the same publishing house that printed Kuchert's book, Understandest Thou What Thou Readest, which constitutes a frontal attack on biblical infallibility, as does Beagle's book. Beagle has an evangelical background, but his commitment to the fallibility of the Bible has become a passion for him, and he wants to share this insight and to convince everyone he can that the Bible is indeed errant. Even a most casual reading of the book shows that Beagle is out for the kill. But in fairness, it must be admitted that this volume, which is a revision, is a substantial improvement on his earlier book, The Inspiration of Scripture. In approaching the new work, we should remember that the first book drew impassioned criticism from some sources and enthusiastic praise from others. The heart of Beagle's argument is that inerrancy and infallibility apply only to God and to his Son, Jesus Christ. Inasmuch as scripture has been given, transmitted, and interpreted through human agencies, it is bound to bear the marks of that humanity. Nevertheless, God is not restricted by this self-imposed limitation. Dewey Beagle puts it this way, Difficult though it may be to understand, God chose to make his authority relevant to his creatures by means that necessitate some element of fallibility. Despite this, scripture is sufficiently accurate and trustworthy to accomplish the divine purpose because the Holy Spirit drives home God's message with authority. It is worth our time to pause to reflect on Beagle's unique statement that constitutes the heart of his viewpoint. He says that God communicated by means that necessitate some element of fallibility. In other words, it was impossible for God to communicate infallibility. If God could not communicate infallibility, then he could not do so on those matters having to do with salvation either. There must be theological error along with theological truth. But if God could communicate infallible theological truth, why is it necessary that there be some element of fallibility in the other parts? Why could he not secure the other parts of scripture from fallibility just as he did the parts that are infallible?
Moreover, Beagle says that God chose to make his authority relevant by this fallible means. Patently, if God is sovereign and God chose to do this, then God could have chosen not to do this. He could have chosen to do it through a scripture that is entirely infallible. Beagle is saying that God, who had choice, chose to make himself known fallibly, and thus God chose to include in scripture that which is in error. But nowhere does Beagle tell us what evidence he has for his assertion that God chose to make scripture fallible, unless he is saying that because he thinks there are errors in scripture, he must then define inspiration and infallibility based on that phenomena of scripture. If he does this, he is faced with the uncomfortable datum that the phenomena of scripture include the assertion that all scripture is profitable. And if error is profitable, we are talking nonsense. Logically and epistemologically, Beagle doesn't have a leg to stand on. Professor F.F. Bruce gives the book this commendation. Dr. Beagle's first edition was largely a demolition job. Here he has rearranged and amplified his material, given the work a new and more comprehensive title, and struck a more positive note. I endorse as emphatically as I can his deprecating of a Maginot line mentality where the doctrine of scripture is concerned. Apparently, F.F. Bruce thinks that for one to hold to biblical inerrancy is to display a Maginot line mentality. Beagle neatly hits J.I. Packer over the head with a meat cleaver as well as all others who believe in inerrancy. He says, Packer's sentiments are commendable in his book Fundamentalism and the Word of God, but he and his fellow inerrantists have so completely fused their emotions and sense of mission with their definition of God's honor that they find it impossible to admit an error when the evidence clearly points in that direction. He himself is not exactly without bias, and it could be said that his own emotions and sense of mission so dominate him that he is incapable of clear thinking. One of the most illuminating of Professor Beagle's many statements about errors in scripture has to do with Pekah in the Old Testament. But before we look at this particular case study, a word of background is in order. The famous case of Pekah. Marcus Dodds, in his book, The Bible, Its Origin and Nature, states, Professor Sace, one of the most conservative living critics, tells us that Assyrian inscriptions have shown that the chronology of the Book of Kings is hopelessly wrong. Dodds quotes disapprovingly and is in agreement with this opinion. It is true that the chronology in the Kings was a problem for many years, it appeared impossible to reconcile the difficulties arising from a comparison of the records that came from the archives of Judah and of Israel. In addition, it seemed impossible to reconcile these with the records of the secular kingdoms of the days. Edwin R. Thiel wrestled with this problem in his doctoral dissertation. In 1951, his book, The Mysterious Numbers of the Hebrew Kings, was published. It brought order out of chaos as Theo managed to reconcile the chronologies in such a way as to enforce the claim to accuracy of the biblical text. Unfortunately, he ran into an apparently irresolvable problem in the case of Pekah. It is this one that Beagle uses as a cause celebrity 
in his latest work, and from it he argues strongly that he has found the most positive proof of errancy in scripture. So we should take a hard look at this problem to see whether it is really as damning as Beagle claims it to be. We do so with the statements of Beagle in mind. He said, Moreover, it should be noted that Thiel's revised theory does not lessen the problem for the inerrancists. Second Kings 15.27 states quite unambiguously that Pekah reigned in Samaria 20 years after he became king of Israel, and this is precisely what did not happen. There is no other way out but to admit that the erroneous details of chapter 15, verse 37 and 32, and chapter 16, verse 1, were in the original compilation of Second Kings. End of quote. I should add that I met with Dr. Beagle in his apartment at the Biblical Seminary years ago and was informed by him that Theo at that time confessed that the problem connected with Pekah constituted an error in scripture. Beagle had this in writing from Dr. Thiel, according to his testimony. Since that time, Edwin R. Thiel has published an article entitled, Co-Regencies and Overlapping Reigns Among the Hebrew Kings, in the Journal of Biblical Literature. In this article, Dr. Thiel has given the key to the Pika problem, and Beagle's claim that scripture has erred falls to the ground. Scripture assigns a 20-year reign to Pika. Where Beagle went wrong was to assume that 2 Kings 15.27 was intended to mean that Pekah reigned 20 years in Samaria. At first glance it appears to say that, but ironically the key to the problem falls in line with one of the claims of the historical critical school, which argues that we must ask what the writer intended to say. Theo lays down this principle with respect to the reigns of some of the kings as given in the book of Kings. He says, The synchronism for the ascension is that of the commencement of the soul reign, but the datum for the length of reign covers both the years of soul reign and also the overlapping years with another king. This was true not only in the case of Pekah, but it was also true of Omri, 1 Kings 16.23, Jehoshaphat, 1 Kings 22 verses 41 and 42, and Jeroboam, 2 Kings 14.23 We know that Pekah actually reigned in Samaria for eight years. We know that his successor was Hoshea, who reigned nine years before Israel was overthrown by the king of Assyria in 722 B.C. Thus the reign of Pekah ended around 732-731 B.C. This is important because if Pekah began his reign in Samaria and if the reign lasted 20 years, then he was king until 720 B.C., and this was two years after the kingdom of Israel had been taken captive. This would have allowed no time for the reign of Hoshea, under whom the kingdom was taken away by the Assyrians. And if Beagle's arguments are correct, then indeed there is a serious chronological error in scripture. We know that when Pekah began his sole reign over Samaria in 740 B.C., he overlapped Menhaim ten years, and Pekiah two years. This means that the year 752 B.C. was the beginning date for Pekah, who overlapped two kings for twelve years, and was sole ruler for eight more years after that. When the writer of the book of Kings set down the chronology, he did two things. First he gave as the accession date for Pekah, 
the year he became sole ruler. Second, he gave the total number of years for Pekah's reign as twenty, and included the twelve years when he was co-regent with Menhem and Pekiah. Since this was written, I have conversed with Dr. Beagle. He agrees that Dr. Thiel has satisfactorily explained the problem connected with the Pekah chronology, but he mentions that 2 Kings 15.27 can be understood to mean only that Pekah reigned twenty years in Samaria, which obviously is incorrect. Dr. Thiel, in a letter to me, stated, To insist that the Hebrew of 2 Kings 15.27 calls for a reign of twenty years in Samaria is unwarranted. I do not believe that 2 Kings 15.27 invalidates the position you hold. End of quote. Dr. Thiel further stated what I had already discovered. The 1959 Berkeley version has a footnote for this indicating that the 20 years included Pekah's reign in Gilead. Moreover, Dr. Gleason L. Archer says in a letter to me that the author simply combined the total length of Pekah's reign as claimant to the throne with the information that during the latter part of that time he actually ruled in Samaria. Dr. Beagle believes that Dr. Thiel still has a problem with Hezekiah's reign, a claim I have not investigated as yet. It must be said that Professor Beagle has been quite candid in asserting that there are errors in the Bible, and he indicated his unhappiness with those evangelicals who, in effect, entertain the same opinion but do not proclaim them openly. The claim of Dr. Thiel that he has solved the chronology problems about the kings of Israel and Judah stands up. This obviates the difficulty raised by Dr. Beagle when he said Clark Pinnock was running away from the Pekah problem. Dr. Beagle wrote of Dr. Pinnock, He ignores the Pekah problem entirely, but had he continued it, still the evidence would not have been insuperable. The fact that Pinnock did not speak to the Pekah question now makes no difference. It has been solved satisfactorily. As one problem after another is resolved, the case for infallibility is strengthened. Peter's Denial of Jesus Beagle, among the other examples of biblical errors, uses the one about Peter and his denial of the Lord Jesus. This illustration is important because it is an incident that is spoken of in all four Gospels. Had the question arisen only in connection with one Gospel account, it would take on a different dimension. But when one has to reconcile four different accounts, it becomes far more complex. Beagle correctly states that in Mark 14.30, Jesus says to Peter, Truly I say to you this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. Then in verse 72 of the same chapter, the fulfillment is recorded. And immediately the cock crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, Before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. However, both Matthew's account, chapter 26, verses 34, 74, and 75, and Luke's account, chapter 22, verses 34, 60, and 61, report that Jesus said, Before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. From Mark's account, there had to be two crowings of the cock. From the accounts of Matthew and Luke, the words twice, second time and twice are omitted. Beagle asked the question, but what essential difference is there if the other gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, follow the general tradition of the cock's crowing just once, whereas Mark says the cock crowed twice? 
All three Gospels contain the historical features necessary to convey the truth of the matter, the prediction of denial, and Peter's boast, the fulfillment of the prediction, and Peter's remorse on remembering the words of Jesus. It is the same old story, never mind the details that are in error. What the writers intended to say comes through despite the errancy of the divergent accounts. How do we respond to this challenge? In 1965, I was in touch with J.M. Cheney of Oakland, California. This man had labored long and hard to reconcile problems connected with some of the apparent discrepancies in the New Testament. He provided me with the answer to this particular problem. I will reproduce only a portion of the material he sent me. He stated that Peter received two different warnings about denying Jesus, and in each warning he was to deny Jesus three times. The first crowing of the cock would occur after the first three denials, and the second crowing of the cock would occur after the sixth denial. He then wove together the accounts of the four Gospels to show how they fit and to conclude that there are no errors. Here is the story from the beginning. The maid who kept the door said to Peter, Are not you also one of this man's disciples? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers, because it was cold, had kindled a charcoal fire in the middle of the courtyard, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself at the fire, and when they sat down, he sat among the guards to see the end. Now Simon Peter was sitting below in the courtyard outside and standing and warming himself. They said to him, Are not you also one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I am not. Then one of the maids of the high priest, seeing Peter warming himself and gazing at him as he sat in the light, said, This man also was with the Galilean. And she came up to him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it before them all, saying, Woman, I do not know him. I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the cock crowed. Yet three denials more. And when he went out to the porch a little later, another maid saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. And someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter again denied it with an oath, Man, I am not. I do not know the man. And the maid saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean. One of the servants of the high priest, a kinsman of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And again the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you are also one of them, for you are a Galilean. Your accent betrays you. But then Peter again denied it and began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Man, I do not know what you are saying. And immediately while he was still speaking, the cock crowed a second time, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how Jesus had said to him, Before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. Before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and went out and wept bitterly. 
The longest paragraph in the above gathers together all the material related to the final denial in all four accounts, but none of it is incompatible. The accounts only supplement each other. A number of accusers evidently surrounded Peter at the climax. Note also that denials four and five are credibly accounted for and make the seeming contradictions in the synoptics understandable. What then is proved? Certainly to begin with, the honesty and accuracy of all four evangelists. Their testimony agrees with a completeness and precision that never marked the word of four witnesses in a courtroom. Yet it is plain they were not coached in that testimony, as is also the fact that they testified independently of each other. Beagle and Essential Matters of Faith Now I return to Beagle and the issue of biblical discrepancies. Previously I alleged that once biblical inerrancy is scrapped, it inevitably leads to further concessions that strike, at last, at the heart of the Christian faith. Beagle has stated that in all essential matters of faith and practice, therefore, Scripture is authentic, accurate, and trustworthy. But by claiming there are errors in Scripture, he has gone beyond that and has denied that in essential matters, Scripture can be trusted. Earlier in his book, he quotes Machen in regard to the virgin birth. Machen said, One thing at least is clear. Even if the belief in the virgin birth is not necessary to every Christian, it is certainly necessary to Christianity. And it is necessary to the corporate witness of the church. Then Beagle adds his own conclusion. Machen has shown the impossibility of prescribing a minimal core of biblical events to which assent must be given before saving faith is possible. God recognizes the sincere doubts of men, and he undoubtedly saves men who do not have enough faith to believe certain teachings of Scripture. Unfortunately, Beagle does not list the certain teachings of Scripture that men can doubt and still have saving faith, nor does he list what the minimal core of biblical events are to which assent must be given before saving faith is possible. But surely the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead must be considered one of the essentials of saving faith if 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 5 tells us the truth and if the Acts of the Apostles, which majors on the resurrection, is valid. The Resurrection and Willie Markson Beagle treats the case of Willie Markson, professor of New Testament at the University of Munster, West Germany. Markson was charged with heresy by the Evangelical Church of Westphalia. Markson himself wrote, There is no doubt that the authors of the New Testament, or to be accurate, the authors of some of the books of the New Testament, were convinced that the resurrection of Jesus actually took place on the third day after the crucifixion. Anyone who says that this is not a real event is therefore saying something different from what these writers thought. Then Beagle adds, But Markson cannot accept their view literally because of the numerous contradictions of details in the various accounts. Later he adds, Markson's sincerity is evident throughout the book. He is absolutely convinced that Jesus of Nazareth is living and calling him to faithful service. But he is equally certain that belief in the physical resurrection of Jesus is unfounded. Accordingly, he feels compelled to express his conviction honestly and openly. 
this writer concurs with him acknowledging that the biblical passages dealing with the resurrection swarm with difficulties, some details of which cannot be harmonized, but such contradictions do not cancel out the historical core of the accounts. Then Beagle arrives at his odd but interesting conclusion. He says, Neither this writer nor any other Christian has the authority to declare that Markson cannot possibly have genuine faith because he cannot bring himself to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. It is imperative for us to note what Beagle is saying and what the implications are. Markson admits that the New Testament writers believed in the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead and so taught. He is not arguing, and neither is Beagle, that there are errors in the accounts about the fact of the bodily resurrection so far as the apostles are concerned. And Beagle has stated that on essential matters of faith, Scripture can be trusted. Clearly and unequivocally, Scripture teaches that belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is essential to saving faith. Paul says, If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10 verse 9 The converse of any proposition is true. Thus, if you do not call Jesus Lord and do not believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will not be saved. It can be established beyond question that when Paul talked about Jesus being raised from the dead, he was talking about a bodily resurrection. In John 12 verse 9, this is made plain. When the great crowd of the Jews learned that he was there, they came, not only on account of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And the same Greek word for raised is used here that was used in Romans 10 verse 9. If Lazarus was raised from the dead in bodily form, then Jesus was raised in bodily form. And the scripture states that anyone who does not believe that God raised Jesus from the dead cannot be saved. Markson may be sincere and may express his conviction honestly and openly about Jesus and the resurrection. And Beagle may be just as sincere and just as honest and open when he says that no one has the authority to declare that Markson cannot possibly have genuine faith because he cannot bring himself to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. But both of these sincere men are wrong, and Beagle cannot honestly face the facts, nor can he honestly say that scripture can be trusted on essential matters of faith and at the same time adjudge that Markson is a Christian. For the Apostle Paul declares that no one can be a Christian who does not believe that God has raised Jesus from the dead, and even Markson agrees that Scripture is speaking of a bodily resurrection. Logically, Beagle then has to be claiming that Paul is wrong about this essential matter. This means that his doctrine of biblical errancy has gone far beyond the question of incidentals on matters of science, fact, and chronology. His errancy teaching has brought him to the place where he overtly denies one of the most important teachings of the scriptures, the teaching by Paul that no one can be saved who denies the bodily resurrection. And if Beagle can do this, then there is no reason why he cannot also go beyond that and assert that an atheist who is sincere and expresses his convictions honestly and openly can be saved too. And the one who does not believe that Jesus is God can be saved. And whoever is sincere, honest, and open, but does not believe in the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity can be saved.
Beagle's adherence to a fallible Bible we now can see has taken him far beyond the simple claim that there are incidental errors. His book gives ample proof of my assertion that once inerrancy goes, it inevitably leads to further concessions, and sooner or later it leads to a denial of basic theological truths about which there can be no compromise. But more than that, Beagle's position puts him as an authority over the Apostle Paul, who has declared that what Beagle claims cannot be true. So we are faced with the problem of having to choose between Beagle and Paul. For Beagle to set in judgment on Paul is arrogant, unless Beagle has the truth and Paul does not. In that contingency, Paul ceases to be a conveyor of theological truth, despite his claim that he was led by the Holy Spirit in indicting Scripture. But Beagle does not claim to be led of the Holy Spirit to indict new scripture that corrects the errors of the Old Testament. Beagle is wrong at one other point. He says that no Christian has authority to declare that Marxism cannot possibly have genuine faith. If Paul says that such a man does not have genuine faith despite his sincerity, honesty, and openness, then any Christian has the right to agree with Paul and to pronounce Paul's, not his own, judgment. No one who denies the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead can be a Christian unless the Bible has told us what is false. And if it is false at that point, that is so important. Of what value is it for anything else? In another place, Beagle tells us that very many people have held correct doctrinal views without possessing genuine faith. I suspect that no one will disagree with that statement. The scripture itself tells us that the devils believe and tremble, James 2.19. They know and accept all the doctrinal truths of scripture, but they are not saved. It should be patent that these people of whom Beagle speaks must have held the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, but they did not have genuine faith. They are unsaved. And yet Beagle, in the case of Markson, states that this man is saved even though he denies essential doctrine. It would be fascinating to know how Beagle is able to discern who is saved while not holding correct doctrine and who is lost even though he does hold correct doctrine. He must have some other criteria that are indefectible and infallible or he possesses a prescience equal to that of the angels who know the saved from the lost and will separate the wheat from the chaff at the end of the age. If there is an end of the age and a judgment, and a separation of the sheep from the goats. In another way, Professor Beagle strays far beyond the question of apparent errors in Scripture. He assures us that some of the writings of post-Reformation people would have found their way into sacred Scripture. He says, From the standpoint of theological interpretation, the canon has never been closed. For this reason, there is no basis in considering all of the biblical writers and editors as qualitatively different from post-canonical interpreters. Some of the Psalms are simply an exhortation to praise God because of his dealings with Israel. Some of the great hymns evidence the same kind of inspiration. Had Isaac Watts, Charles Wesley, Augustus Toplady, and Reginald Herbert lived in the pre-exilic centuries of David and his successors, and been no more inspired than they were in their own day, there is little doubt but that their hymns, which would have been different, of course, because the revelation of Jesus was still in the future, would have found their way into the Hebrew canon. 
Beagle seems to be saying that the same kind of inspiration that the writers of scripture experienced has been and may be experienced by men today. And what they have written and are writing could be in the canon of scripture. This will sound wild to those who believe that the writers of scripture were chosen vessels through whom God elected to reveal himself in a special way and for the special purpose of indicting scripture. Not even these people were rendered free from error outside of that special task of writing scripture. No evangelical will allege that Christians cannot write things that are fully in accord with the revelation of God, but that is something quite different from saying that what they write, even though true, could be thought of as canonical, or is inspired in the same way as that term is used with respect to scripture. Beagle's statement is of special interest from another perspective. The people he has chosen for his illustration represent a special class of people. What they wrote is harmonious with the divine revelation we now have. With regard to the essentials of Christian faith, they are impeccable. Now if Beagle is correct in stating that there is no basis for considering all of the biblical writers and editors as qualitatively different from post-canonical interpreters, then he surely would have to include men like Karl Barth, Emil Brunner, John Braley, William Temple, Reinhold Niebuhr, Hans Kuhn, and Willie Markson. If these people are not qualitatively different from the biblical writers and editors, how can it be that they have embraced viewpoints that are opposed to the doctrinal viewpoints of the writers of scripture? And how come they also have written things that plainly contradict those of Watts, Toplady, Herber, and Charles Wesley? Beagle evidently has in mind a kind of inspiration in which different writers, equally inspired, can write the opposite of each other. And if this kind of inspiration exists, it is a strange kind of inspiration and something we can afford to do without. If all inspiration guarantees to us is that we get viewpoints that are contradictory, which ones are we to believe and how are we to know who is right and who is wrong? Or in these days of existential nihilism, how can we now say that Christ is God and that Christ is not God and that both statements are true? Thus Beagle again demonstrates that he has gone far beyond the question of errors in scripture. He has wandered into a wasteland filled with quicksand from which there is no escaping. Having scrapped inerrancy, he has fallen into this quicksand, a fate that could not have befallen him if he had stayed with inerrancy and followed through on its implications. This note must be emphasized again and again. Those who hold to inerrancy will not fall into the inconsistencies that characterize Beagle's position. Now I return to Beagle's claim that scripture contains errors of various kinds. I have discussed two of the illustrations he has adduced and have shown that there are answers to his allegations of error. I have acknowledged that some of the so-called discrepancies do involve intricate problems, such as Peter's denial of the Lord Jesus. I do not claim to have answers to all of the objections raised by Beagle and other critics of Scripture. But I have satisfied myself that a multitude of the problems surfaced by critics of former ages have already been answered and no longer constitute problem areas. I am satisfied that some of the difficulties mentioned in this chapter posed by men like Mounts and Beagle do have solutions. What about the problems that remain? 
It is my judgment that many of the so-called discrepancies will be resolved as evangelical scholars give their attention to them. It would be foolish for me or for anyone else to assert that all of the difficulties will be answered this side of eternity. They may or they may not be. But the absence of a solution for even a single remaining problem is no reason to suppose that there is no solution. The fact that there have been dogmatic assertions made about the certainty of this mistake or that only to have the misma dispelled by a solution suggests the need for critics to be very tentative in charging error against scripture. Professor Beagle concurs with Markson that the biblical passages dealing with the resurrection swarm with difficulties, some details of which cannot be harmonized. I recall that my friend Chenny years ago worked out the resurrection narratives and did for them what he has done for Peter's denial, which is discussed in this chapter. His conclusions have been published in The Life of Christ in Stereo, copyrighted by Western Baptist Seminary Press. His work provides a satisfactory response to Beagle's claim that the accounts swarm with difficulties. All of this leaves us with this question. Since everyone admits that there are problem areas for which there are no present answers, why then believe in an inerrant scripture? There are two possible answers to this question and perhaps both of them should be used in tandem. The first is that God is the author of scripture and he cannot lie. This is the presuppositionalist's claim and looks at the problem deductively. It hardly strains the imagination to suppose that if God used erring human beings through whom to convey theological truth, it is no less difficult and appropriate for him, consistent with his nature, to preserve them from historical, factual, and scientific errors as well. He could have done this while respecting their humanity, using their own literary styles, and preserving their personhood and integrity. This mystery is no less profound than that of the two natures of Christ in one person, a human nature and a divine nature, operating coordinately so each functions properly and there is no violation of each nature. But the mystery remains. The second answer to the question is that scripture itself claims to be inerrant. This represents the inductive approach and is derived from an examination of the phenomena of scripture. If we cannot trust what scripture says about itself, there is no reason to trust scripture at all. If scripture claims to be inerrant and we find that there are places that call this claim into question, then we must choose between those scriptures that claim inerrancy and those that purportedly are in error. If we opt for error, then we must conclude that the claim of Scripture to inerrancy is an error too. But if we opt for the claim of Scripture to inerrancy, then we must conclude that the problem areas are not erroneous and that when all the facts are in, adequate solutions will be found for them. Perhaps a third possibility should be explored. Namely, that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirits that this is the Word of God that can be trusted. But this presents its own difficulty since there are those who claim to be Christians who would say that the Holy Spirit has not witnessed them that way. And some might even claim that the Spirit has witnessed to them that there are errors in the Word of God. There is one last word that needs to be said, however. God's great adversary is Satan, who seeks to defeat the work of God at every point. 
He is forever active and he clouds the minds of men through sin. There is no Christian who has ever had a normal mind since Adam fell in the Garden of Eden. All men's minds, even those that have been converted by the grace of God, still bear the imprint of their old nature. We all see through a glass darkly and we know only in part. If we were truly normal, we would see all things the same way so far as truth is concerned. But we are not, and these important differences will persist until every believer has been glorified and we then have the mind of Christ in all its purity and truth. Until that time comes, Christians should be valiant for the truth. And from my perspective, God is glorified by the mindset that attributes perfection to Scripture rather than by the mindset that attributes error to the written word of God and always leads to further concessions until at last, if not halted, it leads to a full falling away from the holy faith. Page 185, Chapter 10 How Infection Spreads History affords us notable examples of institutions and denominations that have gone astray. At times it is not easy to perceive how this happened. The trend away from orthodoxy may be slow in movement, gradual in its scope and almost invisible to the naked eye. When people awaken to what has happened, it is too late. In medicine, thousands of people die unnecessarily because the cancers that kill them have been diagnosed too late. The cancers existed long before the diagnosis and they grew and spread until the situations, when diagnosed at last, were hopeless. Theological aberration, like cancer, begins as a small and seemingly insignificant blemish, but when it is left to itself, it grows and spreads. One of the classic cases of a theological disease that overtook an institution is that of the liberalism that took over Union Theological Seminary in New York City. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.